the fury and thunder of their hoofbeats has been anticipated for centuries. The harbingers of deception, of destruction, of deprivation and death. And yet the world has resisted their coming. Yet come they will. In 1983, Billy Graham addressed their coming in his book called Approaching Hoofbeats, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And there he wrote, the shadows of all four horsemen can already be seen galloping throughout the world at this very moment. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It's a pretty ominous title, wouldn't you say? Uh, my name is Pastor Milo, and this is what we're diving into this morning. Here we go. So if you open your Bibles this morning to Revelation, Revelation chapter 6. I hope you've got your Bibles. I'm in the New International Version here today, so if you're looking in a digital version, you can look at it there as well. That's what we're going to be talking about. We're in uh, week number four of a sermon series on the book of Revelation, and as we make our way through it, there's a lot that we can find confusing and ominous. We're going to do our best uh, to get through that today. I've heard a story, and perhaps you've heard this one too, of two men standing along the road with a sign that reads, The end is near. Turn around before it's too late. And there's a driver coming down the road, and he stops, and he pulls up, and he rolls down his window. He says, You religious fanatics just need to leave us alone. And he speeds off and takes off. And then in a few minutes, you hear the screeching of tires and then a loud splash. The guy turns to the guy next to him and says, maybe we should just get a sign that says, bridge out instead. <laughs> so here's the question. Is the end really near? Haven't we heard this before? Is Armageddon actually coming? Is the Antichrist, is he close to appearing? Are we going to see the apocalypse in our lifetime? People want to know the answers to these questions. There are people watching from home right now. They have the ability, you have the ability, any of us do at any moment to be able to search these things on the internet. And if you Google the word apocalypse, there are 20 million pages of information that come up. People are asking these questions. Is the end near? In 2012 in Aurora, Colorado, a man walks into a crowded movie theater at the midnight showing of a Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises, and he opens fire. Twelve people are killed, 58 people are wounded, 11 of them in critical condition afterwards. It's one of the deadliest shootings in U.S. history. And he was alleged to have said, as he came through, he called himself the Joker. What a mess. Analysts have poured through the data, looking at it from all different sides for years, trying to figure out what was going inside the mind of a criminal. What happened there? Was he needing psychiatric help? Was this a politically motivated event? What on earth is going on? What happened? And friends, as long as there is sin in the world, there is evil in our world. I wish I could tell you this was an aberration and nothing like this shooting is ever going to happen again. And we can stop it by educating and, and talking about mental health issues or that we can correct negative sociological pressures or we can legislate away gun violence. But that's just not going to work. 
things are not going to get better. I wish I could tell you that everything is going to be okay, everything is going to be better, but according to the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, things are going to get worse. The worst is yet to come. And chapter 6 begins a period of history where in Revelation things begin to get very, very dark. But it's going to finish with a takeover of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning and he is taking control of the earth and I'm so grateful that God is not a politician God isn't running for office making sure that he doesn't alienate his voting block and get anybody upset with him no when God tells us in Scripture and he writes in Revelation he tells us the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth he's not trying to get your vote He's not trying to get you on his side and sway you to his side of the fence so that he can be Messiah in the next election cycle. No, he is God. There is no election, and this is a takeover, and Jesus will take over control. Amen? Chapter 6 begins what you might call an action series now within the book of Revelation. It sounds sort of like a western when it opens up. You've got these four riders on their horses riding through the town and it's almost as if the tumbleweeds are blowing by as they come through the town. That's what I picture is, is the, the cowboys riding the range as we go through this. That's what's kind of in my mindset. And I have to tell you we're heading into some scary territory but there is a purpose behind it. So to use that cowboy analogy, imagine if you will a cowboy with me who decides that he's going to call that hotline, the Geico hotline where he can save 15 minutes if he just, or save 15% if he just gives him 15 minutes. And the insurance agent will ask him, does he said, uh, cowboy, do you have any accidents? Have there been any accidents? He says, well, no. Well, I mean, there is the time that the steer accidentally kicked me in the side and I broke two ribs. And there was the time that the rattlesnake bit me on the ankle the agent says, well, wouldn't you consider those accidents? And the cowboy says, no, I, I don't. I think they did it on purpose. And when you look through Revelation, you might think of all these symbols and all that's happening as these haphazard random accidents. But no, there is a purpose behind each and every one of them. Particularly as we look at these four horsemen today, you're going to see a purpose behind each and every one of them. So let's read Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. That's what we're going to deal with today. These four riders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice that sounded like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. And when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. But do not damage the oil and the wine. 
And when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. There was given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, by famine, and by plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. As I was reading this just now, how many of you kind of had in mind, you say, this is why I don't read the book of Revelation. It's scary stuff. Now, how many of you would be willing to admit over the years you haven't really wanted to dive in, haven't really wanted to spend much time in this book because it's just pretty spooky? When you met those people that said, oh, I understand Revelation, they're just weird people. Some of you got so freaked out just by reading these verses today. You'll be sleeping tonight with a helmet on and a hockey stick in your hand with one eye open the entire night listening for any sound that might move. And I'm right there with you if I'm honest with you. I grew up in a church that was kind of obsessed with the book of Revelation, kind of obsessed with end times. And so I became terrified of all things of the rapture. I got terrified. Anytime that mom and dad weren't around, easily seen, I'd start running around the house or running around the church and looking for it and expecting to find a pile of clothes where my mom had just disappeared. So with that in mind, I want you to know that it's my desire to bring us safely in and safely out this morning, safely into the book of Revelation, safely out of this passage. I want to ensure that no one gets left behind. Some of you got that. If you read a little bit ahead in Revelation, or if you're familiar with the passage, you'll notice that there are three series of events that occupy this section. First, there are the, the seven seals, four of which we're going to look at this morning. And then after that, there are seven trumpets that, that have to be sounded to activate the seals. And then there are seven bowls of wrath that will be poured out. There's a lot coming at us over the next few weeks. But each one of these series of events happen where there are four things that happen and then three things that happen. Four things that were outward and visible and easy to recognize and then three revelations of what's going on behind the scenes as it were by almost angelic agencies both for good and for evil. You're going to kind of see this thing played out. And so I just want you to listen because sometimes we get confused with all the ways that these symbols and all the things that they're pointing to. But the big point, the big picture is crystal clear. And that's what's going to be my job to remind us of as we go through this week after week. And that our focus is on week after week is what is Revelation all about? It's actually who is Revelation all about? It is the revealing of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And as we finished chapter 5 last week, John was there weeping, weeping because there was no one, it appeared, who could open the scroll. They were crying out, is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone who can help? Is there anyone who can do anything about this? Will there be anyone who can come forward and open this scroll? And then Jesus the Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb who was slain, steps forward. Is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone whole? He is. He is. Is what we sang last week. And so how do the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, fit into that context? 
the mass murderer Charles Manson was convinced that the Beatles were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In the 80s, if you're a pro wrestling fan, then Ric Flair called himself one of the four horsemen. It's absurd. There's so many different ways that we could look at this. And truly, the four horsemen have actually filled our our minds, the imagination of every generation for the last 2,000 years since we've had this document to look at. Moving relentlessly across history, they wield destructive power over humanity. But what is it that they are trying to symbolize? When we interpret the symbols of this book, we should consult other parts of Scripture, other prophetic parts and references and descriptions in the Bible because it helps us make sense of it. As a principle, we need to be reminded when you hit a wall, if you're trying to describe and understand the Bible, you hit a wall, you need to remember this. This is a point for you this morning. Scripture always interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So if we have that in mind, then we are going to realize And it may be surprising to you, but that Jesus actually gives us the key to this well in advance. More than 60 years earlier, he's having a conversation with his disciples. Peter, James, and John, who's the author of this book, and Andrew, he documents it back in Matthew chapter 24. So you turn your way over to Matthew chapter 24. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus describes in some ways some keys for Scripture to interpret Scripture. And at that time, Jesus was about to be crucified by the Romans there in Jerusalem. He just lamented the fact that one more city had now rejected the servant himself that had been sent from God, and he would soon suffer destruction as well. And the disciples heard him say that the magnificent temple there would be crumbled into ruins. That this is in all the other Herodian structures of the day that they thought were so immense, they were going to be reduced to rubble. This was a shocking thought to them, almost beyond belief. And for this small band of brothers, his companions that are there around him, the only thing that that could possibly mean is that it must be the end of the world if that were to happen. All this architectural, stunning architecture that was on the site, so overwhelming, so large, so big, and, and completely overwhelming to think that it would be completely destructed. They came out of the temple and they sat there and they asked Jesus this question. Matthew 24, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus begins to answer that question. But I want you to notice is the unusual correlation between what Jesus taught that day, sitting there in Jerusalem, and the first four seals that we see in Revelation. Because Scripture always interprets Scripture. So we've got to look at the correlation between the two. So you can keep your finger there. I'm going to put on the screen the Revelation passage, but I want you to see the first seal that's opened. It's called the white horse. So it's the white horse that comes. We just read this passage, beginning in verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice that sounded like thunder, Come. I wish I had a voice that sounded like thunder. I don't. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Now, if you're looking at this passage, there's many of us, that you initially look at it, or many people have said, this has got to be Jesus Christ. I mean, he's on a white horse. 
and they correlate that with the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, where it talks about Jesus arriving on a white horse. But Revelation chapter 19, and we'll get there eventually, reveals a different individual than what we see here in chapter 6. The returning Christ in chapter 19 is dressed in a robe that is stained with blood. He's wearing many diadems or many crowns, not a single laurel wreath is what we see here. It's like uh, what the, the, the Greeks would wear in the Olympic Games, that little wreath that goes around their heads like the rider here. And in chapter 19, he's, he's being accompanied by many angelic beings on white horses as well. And his weapon is not a bow, but his weapon is a sword that comes from his mouth. So we got to kind of think about it in context and figure out what's going on. Because if we look at what's happening in Matthew chapter 24, in light of what Jesus is trying to show us and teach us, you'll understand why the rider does seem pretty similar at first glance. According to Jesus, there's actually going to be a rider or riders who would impersonate the Messiah. So don't be fooled, he tells us. Look again, chapter, this is Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus answered, this is answering their question, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You see, this first horse of the apocalypse is really the white horse of deception. The white horse of deception. Jesus' warning here clearly identifies the white horseman in chapter 6 of Revelation. He's an imposter. And men who claim to be the anointed one are false messiahs. Men who counterfeit in the future role, and they, they call themselves the true returning of Christ. And, and well, how is it that you would even fall for that? Well, counterfeits are hard to see sometimes. It's not always easy to spot. And it's so close that it could be the real thing, except for the trained eye that would be able to catch it. So Jesus, the trained eye, is teaching us and showing us that we can be deceived by human beings who claim to be the Messiah. And they are claiming to be appointed by God to rule and to reign. And such people present themselves as the only one who could possibly solve all of our problems. And more often than not, the false Messiah will combine religion and politics in an effort to be accepted as the anointed one. In their time period, take well, it's a little bit after that, the 4th century Roman Emperor Constantine. So Constantine is the man who's credited with Christianizing the entire Roman Empire. So we think of him in a good way at first. But he also claimed to be one of the apostles, even God's agent. But in the end, his behaviors did not match up what we certainly would have expected out of one of the apostles of Christ. Long after he declared the entire Roman Empire to be Christian, he was involved with the murder of his own wife, his own son, and his sister, excuse me, stepsister's stepson. And then other more recent examples of the false messiah would include Napoleon or Stalin or Mussolini or Hitler or Mao Zedong. All of them take advantage or have taken advantage of the language of religion and its imagery, stirring up a religious fervor. And they get all of their followers to, to actually worship them because it seemed like they had all the answers. But of course, each of these false messiahs failed be, because they were false. They brought great destruction to the world, including their own people. Millions died because of their violent rule 
their purges and their wars. Almost every one of these false messiahs led their deluded followers into war. And that's what comes next in the sequence of riders in Revelation 6. According to Jesus' warning, in the wake of false messiahs would come the bloodshed of war represented by the rider of the red horse. The second rider, the red horse. Verse 3, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given the power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill one another. To him was given a large sword. So if you've still got your finger in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us the key to understanding the horseman when he tells his disciples this, verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You see, this red horse is a horse of war, a red horse of destruction. You see, again, Jesus, as he is telling you, says, says to not be, uh, not be alarmed. How can you not be alarmed? There's war going on. But he says war and conflict do not necessarily indicate the end of the era. War has plagued humanity since the beginning of civilization. And Jesus, as he is pointing to this, said it would continue until the very end. Because the natural consequence of false claims, wrong ideas, misguided politics, and destructive ideologies of that first horse as it comes through. War is also the end result of blind obedience to leaders filled with unchecked ego and ambitions. Its result is war. Napoleon Bonaparte was primarily a warrior. He's like the first rider on the white horse. He's even famously known to wear one of those wreaths on his head when he was alive. And in the end, he was buried wearing one of them. But leadership also under him would bring his white horse to become a red horse at full gallop on the world's scene. During Napoleon's time, France was at war with four other colonial powers, the Spanish, the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the British. And because of Napoleon's aggression, he sent French forces all around the world, and it's estimated that between 3.5 and 6 million people died in Napoleon's wars. In the 20th century, Joseph Stalin's record is even worse. Violence and war, domestic and international, it all characterized his regime. Manipulation of religious sentiment underscored the duplicity and what pure numbers, if you really take a look at it, arguably make him one of the most murderous regimes in human history. And he's not the only one. They're not the only one. Many other cruel leaders have come and gone on the global stage in the 2,000 years since the letter Revelation was written. The story repeats itself again and again. Totalitarian cruelty wrongful imprisonment, the brutal death of millions. The red horseman often rides in the wake of a false messiah. You see, a false Christ or false Christs will bring on total war. When Jesus tells his disciples about the conditions that would long precede his return, he was also showing his disciples that human beings will have certain tendencies. And so like sheep, 
humans, we all will follow false messiahs down the path of deception. And they're inclined to accept that war is inevitable. Human nature is also implicated as part of the problem of the Red Horseman's Ride. Former U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower addressed the harsh reality of war when he said this. Every gun that is made, every warship that is launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense theft. Theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending. It is spending the sweat of its laborers. It is spending the genius of its scientists. It is spending the hopes of its children. We pay for a single fighter plane with half a million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer ship with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all, not in any true sense. No, under the cloud of threatening war is humanity hanging itself from a cross of iron. War is certainly an ongoing part of our present human condition. If the red horsemen of war can lead us directly forward into the third devastating horseman, the third world condition, and that is the black horse. Verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was the black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. But do not damage the oil and the wine. And as we've seen already, if Scripture is going to interpret Scripture, what does Jesus have to say? Well, Jesus explained to his disciples how the deception of war will long turn into two long-lasting global conditions. And so he adds this warning, verse 24, chapter 24, verse 7. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. You see this black horse and the rider with scales on that to measure things out, to measure things back and forth is the black horse of famine. It's well established that war takes its toll on food, food supplies, and they all dwindle. War causes disruption of food production and distribution chains. People are often unable to buy what little remains. Theft and desperation spread quickly. That's what's signified by the idea of scales, whether it's the food itself that's being measured out with these scales or actually what it costs for the food as prices begin to skyrocket. In first century Rome, a denarius was worth about a day's wages. Some of your uh, translations say denarius there. So two pounds of wheat for a denarius or a day's wages. So wheat was for human consumption, was generally more valuable than barley. Barley is typically would be used for animal feed. And so these words here are not about harming the oil and the wine. is actually the ridiculousness of the nature. That's the saddest of all because the suppliers, the ones who are holding the food, they are actually profiting more and producing the more lucrative items and cutting back on the food supply, these staple foods that people needed. And they were making the famine worse. The hoofbeats of the black horse. In the 20th century, the shadows of the black horse appear with Joseph Stalin as he launched his attack on the Soviet farmers. 
He was determined that he was going to wipe them out, wipe out that class. He wanted nothing to do with them. And it led to catastrophic famine and death of millions of people. In a similar move, Mao Zedong from the People's Republic of China, he declared war on, on, of sorts on his own people. And there was a violent attempt to advance China industrially in the world between 1958 and 1961. And so he ordered that all of the nation's agriculture sector would produce as much food as possible because he was going to exchange it with other communist nations around the world. It was to be sent particularly to the Soviet Union in exchange for the industry that they desired. And false claims were made about the country's improving production and they lied about it over and over and over again and critically needed foods were being exported away. And by 1961, the farms themselves, they became laborers in industrial production and through bad weather and through bad choices and poor harvests and diminished agricultural workers, 30 to 40 million Chinese people died in those years. And Mao refused to accept that his policies had actually created the problem, the worst famine ever in China, if not in world history. But instead, what did he do? He claimed that the leaders that were around him had caused the, idea, caused the problem by criticizing him and his ideas. So the black horse and its rider represent these terrible famines that have destroyed millions of lives. And in each case, when you look at each of these things, you see that it's all a result of following the policies and the decisions of a delusional leader. Someone who has put themselves in the seat of Messiah. The red, the white, the black horsemen, deception, war, famine, all lead to one thing. They all lead to a tragic end in the next devastating rider. The fourth seal breaks. It reveals a fourth horseman. And beyond the, cat, the catastrophic events that were brought on by the first three rider comes the next. And this is the pale horse. Some of your translations might say the green horse. Verse 7, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was followed close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And so if we recap once again and remember that Scripture always interprets Scripture, as we have seen here already, and how Matthew, in his gospel, how Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's helping them understand how the end of the age will work, and he's giving them these warnings. Jesus shows them that these ongoing conditions that would typify the world as it is declining, he warned them not to be deceived into thinking, this is it, this is the end, this must be the one, when false messiahs come. When famines disrupt the world, when wars tear people apart. And this fourth condition he gives, he says this is beginning to be the beginning of the end. Look again at verse 7. There will be famines. Some of your translations say there will be pestilences and earthquakes in various places. This also parallels the fourth rider's ride. His horse is a gray, pale, green, like the color of many who are sick and dying. This is the pale horse of death. 
the rider's name, the horse rider's name is death. Death that comes from pestilences or diseases, epidemics, plagues. Death that come from devastating earthquakes. Hundreds of thousands of people die in those things. Death from wild beasts roaming the earth. Either that's a literal thing that is happening because animals are now scrounging for food and now they're taking on humankind or it's symbolic of the predatory behavior that is happening when people who are in their biggest time of need and evil men are actually predatorily coming on them and taking them over during a natural disaster. Opportunist infections and sicknesses have always come in the wake of war and famine. Malnutrition means that the immune system is suppressed and very much the body is, is open and able to be taken out with full-blown attacks of the AIDS virus or Ebola. Illnesses that are rare in most societies take a foothold of, of healthy people who would normally be able to fight them off. Unhealthy people are not able to. During wars and after wars, epidemics have often spread very quickly. During the Thirty Years' War of the 1600s, typhus killed millions before it was halted. World War I, when millions or more had died, now even more died from typhus in Russia and Poland and Romania. The end of World War I in 1918, as you have heard now, we've talked about it very often, the Spanish flu killed as many 100 million across the globe as soldiers were returning home from war. In John's vision here in Revelation chapter 6, following closely behind this rider, death riding the pale horse is Hades, it says. Some of your translations might say the grave following close behind. The final resting place for those who are destroyed by these four horsemen. So as this letter was written, the four horsemen begin to ride. As Billy Graham is writing and saying, their, their thunderous hooves can be heard all throughout history, generation after generation. And they continue to pound the ground until this day. This world, this world that we live in, plunged under the leadership of, and the powers of sin and of darkness. And yet for all the terrible death and destruction that they bring, there is good news the end of this terrible journey. See, the same Jesus who provides the key for us in Matthew chapter 24 to understand the meaning of even what is going on is also the key for us that puts things into perspective because he is the one who's going to put an end to their destructive power and the ride that they are having. You see, as, as it is always, it's always dark for the wicked. It's always dark for for Satan. It's always dark for those who follow after the enemy. It's always dark for those who were duped into following the lies of the enemy along the way. And it's always dark when sin reigns on the earth, but it's always light for the people of God. And as the band comes up to play for us this morning, as we've talked about the four horsemen, as we've talked about the horse of death. We've talked about the horse of war, the horse of famine, the horse of deception. We need to remember the light in the darkness, the hope in the valley. In the days of the flood, all of the earth was going to be washed away, but there was an ark that was there for the family of the people of God. 
In the days of the Israelites, there were cities of refuge that were established for those who'd gotten themselves, who'd inadvertently shed innocent blood and fallen into the way. There was always, that sin always had a way of forgiveness. In the days that the, the Bible is being written, the New Testament is being written, in A.D. 70, when the temple falls, there was Pella. It was a refuge city for the saints who loved Jesus. And there is a refuge today for the people of God, God's people. You see, if I face death in 2021, if I face death in the month of June 2021, if I face death tomorrow afternoon, if I face death today, I do not need to be afraid. I do not need to go asleep tonight with a helmet on and a hockey stick in my hand. I do not need to be afraid. Do you have that kind of certainty? Do you know? Do you know that if you were to die today, that you know Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Scripture makes it very clear to us that sin is what separates us from God. It is the darkness that we cloak ourselves in for no reason when the light is available to us. We are told, we, we find that we are to admit that we are a sinner. Do you admit that you are a sinner and sin is keeping you from God? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to break that? That he is the light in the darkness. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If we confess his name, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Would you confess his name this morning? One of the most familiar passages in all of scripture, David writes about the refuge that he finds in God. Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, or I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff they comfort me. So even though the valley is dark, even though it is scary place out there, David is saying, I am comforted because God is with me. I know that he is in control. In another valley, in another vision, the prophet Ezekiel is there. And God places before him a vision of a valley of dry bones. The vegetation is dead. Everything is dead. It looks like a nuclear holocaust. But when he looks into that scene, God asks him, he said, do you think I can do something about this? Can I make the dry bones come alive? And with the breath of God, life comes into the bones and the bones come alive, the silly song that we sing. Those bones and bones are going to move again. They're gonna, yeah, they're going to shake. They're going to move. Why? Because God can breathe life into our lungs. And so this morning, as the, the band is going to play in just a moment, the horsemen through history do continue to come along. We see many different shadow representations of what is a really scary thing happening in Revelation. But do you find your refuge in Him?
Because in the middle of all of this, you grab a hold of the fact that Jesus is the one worthy to open the scroll. Jesus is both the Lion of Judah and, and the Lamb that was slain. And through what He has done, He can breathe breath into our lungs. Lord, we love You and we thank You for how You work in our lives. We thank You for this, this letter of revelation, Lord, that this vision that You gave to John, Lord, as we do our very best to try to, to look at it and make sense out of it. Lord, we pray that in the middle of all that, that we are drawn to You the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, as we look at the landscape, it looks like death. Lord, would you breathe life into our lungs this morning? In Jesus' name I pray.